What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we wrap up our sermon series on what is the Bible. We've been looking at not just what the Bible is, but how we can make sure we can trust what, what we read there. We started with the key rule in reading the scriptures. Jesus reminded his followers that loving God and loving your neighbor is the most important commandment. If we interpret the Bible to promote hate, we have lost our way. And Jesus was especially tough on the religious leaders. It's on us to keep moving toward grace and mercy and love in all areas of life. Then we looked at the inspiration of the scriptures and how the transfiguration reminded us of the whole point of the scriptures. All of the Bible is meant to point us to Jesus. So that's what we are listening for in all of the scriptures. Finally, last week, we looked at how God speaks to and through us, and that happens through mediation, through Jesus as both king and priest. We can approach the throne of grace, the presence of God, because Jesus made a way for us. Even if we feel unworthy, even if we feel like a failure, God works in us and through us because Jesus died for us so we could have that opportunity. Now we come to the dramatic conclusion of our series, trying to apply these key ideas to other parts of Scripture. Some stories are tough to understand. Some ideas seem out of step with God's character. How do we deal with those challenging Scriptures? We're going to hear one of those passages right now from the Gospel of John. Eric is going to read for us. You may be familiar with the first portion that is often read at funerals, but we are going to hear this section all the way to the end. In this gospel, we have already encountered seven incredible signs from Jesus that show us he is no mere mortal. He turned water into wine. He healed multiple people. Jesus fed thousands, and then perhaps the most underrated miracle of all time happened. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now Jesus is in his last days with the disciples, and he tells them the way to the Father. Let's hear the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, and believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may, also, may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do, not you, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. 
Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. And from 1 Chronicles 16, verses 11 and 12, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wonderful works he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Help us to know uh, now not only to hear your word, but interpret it in a way to make us a blessing to the world. Make us wise, Lord, and, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A little joke as we begin. Einstein says to another man on the train with him, let's play a game. I will ask you a question, and if you don't know the answer, you will pay me only $5, but if you ask me and I don't know the answer, I will pay you $500. The man agrees, and the game begins. Einstein asks the first question, what is the distance between the earth and the moon? And the man doesn't say a word. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out $5. He then asks Einstein, what goes up a hill on three legs but comes down on four? Einstein thinks about it for a long time but can't answer the question. Finally, he gives the man his $500. An irritated Einstein then asks, well, tell me, what goes up uh, on a hill on three legs and comes down on four. And the man, he reaches into his pocket and gives Einstein $5. <laughs> Having spent three decades now seriously studying the scriptures, I can honestly admit that many times I feel just like those two men quizzing each other. I began studying the Bible when I was just 12 years old. I had gone to a weekend retreat with my youth group, and the person leading it challenged us to read the Bible every day. I felt moved to do so, and like many people, I started at the very beginning, Genesis 1-1. The first several chapters were interesting, even if I didn't really understand it very well, but the more I read, the more confusing it became. What did these stories mean? What was the point of all these rules in Exodus and Leviticus? How did any of what they were saying point me to a faithful life lived in God's will? Reading the Bible to understand the will of God is easily the most difficult thing I have ever tried to do in my life. Now, for some strange reason, I didn't stop. I kept reading even when I didn't understand. I kept reading the stories and rules and the history of Israel and Jesus and the disciples. Of course, I've read it many more times, I certainly don't understand everything, but today I love to sit and read the scriptures to better understand the will of God for my life. That one request from that one man that led a retreat years ago has forever changed my life. I've heard similar stories from folks here at Grace and, and all over, reading the Bible, wrestling with it, to know God's will and to share God's love with the world has transformed your life. But reading it and getting it right, living according to God's standards rather than our own, can be oh so hard to do. We have a tendency to get it wrong. 
Now, sometimes that's because we simply don't understand. We don't know the answer like Einstein in his bet. And I think most people are in this category. Usually, we think of ourselves as fine. We aren't bad people. We don't do bad things. Well, maybe once in a while we do something we shouldn't, but we feel bad about it, and we try not to do it again. In that situation, we are largely acting out of ignorance. We don't even see all the ways that we fall short. But we can also be lazy. Sometimes we know exactly what God requires of us. We know what God wants us to do, but we simply won't do it. It might also be deeply ingrained habits that keep us away from God's path. Others are at the point of addiction. They no longer have the ability to stop themselves, even when they know it will be destructive. All kinds of things can keep us away from God. Whatever the cause of our particular response to God, we know that it's the scriptures that point us in the right direction. They point us to God. That's why studying the scriptures is so important. It pulls us out of our ignorance, and it can even help us to overcome other struggles that we have. The question in front of all of us is, do you want to know God better? Do you want to experience the living God and act alive and active in your life? Many of us here today would say, yes, yes, we do. And yet, we don't read the Bible despite it being the most direct way to know God's will. So, Let's take some time right here to walk through some of the scriptures. Now, this is going to be a little different from what we normally do. We'll do a little bit of a, a survey of several scriptures to get a sense of how the scriptures point us to the truth of God. Maybe by applying some of the tools we've learned about over the last few weeks, this will spur us on. When, when we read these stories, we might say, wait, what? What in the world does this mean? So let's dive in and see how God might be speaking into our lives today that we might better understand God's will. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a story in the Old Testament that was a tough one to understand. I'd like to go back and revisit the story and see if we can make some headway on it. The story is found in 2 Kings 2 and involves Elisha, a prophet of God, who goes to the city of Bethel, and, and the scriptures say, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, go away, bald head, go away, bald head. When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. That's it. That's the whole story. So there are a few things we need to know first. We have very little detail in this story, and some things we think we probably know may be wrong. Uh, these aren't little boys, despite the words that we have there in the Scripture. This is a large group of teenagers that is roving across the city. Today, we would call it a gang, and they are threatening a religious figure. When they say, go away, bald head, they are really telling him to go up and disappear like the other prophet Elijah did earlier in the chapter. This isn't Elisha sicking bears on some little boys. It's a gang mocking and threatening a brand new prophet. Then add to that, at the time, any ravaging wild beasts were seen as punishment from God. That's just how they understood it. Today, I don't think we would think the same thing. If you reread the story, what it actually says is Elisha cursed the teenagers, period. Then two, uh, two bears mauled the boys. 
two people might understand that passage very differently. One might say, God made the bears maul the boys because God was revealing his power at work through the prophet. Also note that it does not say that the boys were killed in the passage either. Another might say the bears acted on their own. It was simply natural consequences of this gang doing what they want whenever they want. Now, when you apply some of the basic tools we've been learning about, you can judge for yourselves. The scriptures over and over say that God is love and we are to love God and love our neighbor. Does one way of interpreting this story look more loving to you? We also learned that the scriptures are inspired. Does God's power revealed through a prophet point to something good and true about God? If the teens were not hostile, would things have turned out differently? I bet they would have. God wants us to turn from our sin now so things don't get worse later. God is inviting us back to him, back to his way of life, so that it will go well with us. That's the wisdom and love of God at work. When we take the time to understand the scriptures rightly, we find that a path to God is opened up to us. I want to look at one more Old Testament story before we come back to our passage in John 14 we read today. It's a short little verse in Proverbs 13. Many of us know it as, spare the rod, spoil the child. I talked about this passage last year, but perhaps the most surprising thing is that spare the rod, spoil the child isn't actually in the Bible. Uh, that's a saying that comes from ancient Assyria and was made popular in the 1700s. What Proverbs actually says is, those who spare the rod hate their children, but those who love them are diligent to discipline them. And when we hear rod, we probably think of a metal rod or, or maybe a king's scepter, but what is more likely in mind here is the shepherd's rod. The shepherd had a staff that was curved or hooked at the end. The, the shepherd didn't beat or abuse the sheep. No, that would be a horrible shepherd. Instead, they would protect the sheep with the rod, fending off wild animals. They would pull the sheep out of danger with the hook and help prod them in the right direction. Does any of that sound like spare the rod, spoil the child? I know it doesn't to me. But if I keep in mind that God's love is the core of the gospel message, and that if I listen closely to God's voice by approaching his throne of grace, receiving forgiveness and responding to others with grace, I think I might be able to see more clearly what this verse is saying. It's saying, don't neglect your child. Don't ignore proper instruction. Make sure they are going the right way and make sure you are there to protect them. Many of us get this intuitively. Neglect is not okay. Instead, actively love your children so they can be a blessing to you and to the world. So we've seen a couple of examples on some tougher passages. We could do this all day, going through the scriptures, trying our best to rightly understand verse by verse through the prism of God's love, inspiration, and grace. But let's look at our passage from John 14. The main thrust of the passage is that Jesus is preparing a place for his followers. We often hear this verse at funerals, and we know, uh, and we think of the Father's house as heaven. And Jesus goes on to say, if you know me, you will know the Father. He's saying God and Jesus are in one another, and to see one is to see the other. What I want you to focus on is the very last line. If in my name you ask me for anything... I will do it. Have you ever thought, 
Why won't God do this thing for me? Or why won't God heal me or heal my sick family member? If God has the power to do this thing, why won't he fix it? What we want is for God to act the way that we see fit. We think we know best. We know what God should do, and he should just do it. But that's not actually seeking the will of God in faith. That's trying to make magic. See, magic is whenever we try and get God to do what we want God to do. It's when we use whatever skill or power or resources we have to get God to do our thing, not the other way around. The way God set things up is entirely different. God intends us to do his will here on earth, not our own. So this is a good question to ask ourselves. Am I more interested in my goals, my own desires, or in the desires of God? John 14 is trying to teach us about this concept, but it's very easy to misunderstand it. When we hear verse 13 where Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name, we think, oh, if I just ask for it in the name of Jesus, then I'll get it. But that is actually the exact opposite of what this verse is teaching. In ancient Judaism, doing something in the name of another person meant you were an emissary. Think of an ambassador or representative of a king who has to negotiate with a foreign government. The ambassador's job is not to decide what they think is best and do that. Their job is to represent the king and their country. They have to follow the rules and negotiate for what their leader wants. The ambassador is to speak the same words that the king himself would speak. Reminds me of this joke. There was a a call from the New York Times to the ambassador of Norway. The reporter asked the ambassador what he wanted for Christmas, and the ambassador said, I can't receive gifts. I don't want anything. The reporter said, okay, and hung up. The next day, he calls again and says, are you sure you don't want anything for Christmas? The ambassador says, yes, I don't want to cause a scandal here. Don't get me anything. The reporter calls up a, a third time and says, are you sure you don't want anything for Christmas? I don't think you understand. The ambassador is upset this time. I understand you're trying to get me in trouble. And he says, if it will get you to leave me alone, get me a fruit basket. He's sure that won't cause any problems. The reporter says, okay, and hangs up. And when the article of the paper comes out, it says, I called ambassadors around the world, and this is what they wanted for Christmas. China wants a better economy. France, free trade between the U.S. and Europe. South Africa, an end to starvation. Peru, better environmental care. And Norway, a fruit basket. Ambassadors have to know what the king would want. If you say the wrong thing, you could embarrass your country. The ambassador has to know what is in the mind of the king so he or she can be a proper representative. That's what this verse means. We are so in tune with what God would want in a situation that we are able to literally ask of Jesus the same thing that God wants. Now, Knowing God's will is a tough thing to do. I think we all struggle with this to one degree or another. Only Jesus can know God's will perfectly, but our goal is to become as closely aligned with God's will as possible. It's not magic when you know God's desire in a situation, pray for it, and it happens. We know God's will here by by reading the Bible, by reading and reflecting 
you can join a, a Bible study to, to know this better. You could become a mentor with the confirmation class where we read one full gospel together. I think of Ed, who turned 72 and read the 73rd Psalm every day of that year. At 73, he'll read the 74th Psalm every day of that year. There are all kinds of great ways to study the Bible that help us to get in tune with Jesus, knowing the very heart of God. That's what John 14 is saying. The way to the Father is not having all your wishes granted. It's a devotion and commitment to loving God that is so deep, your life follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's end with this. Army Corporal Jacob DeShazer flew a bomber during World War II. His orders were to drop bombs on Tokyo, crash land, and to evade capture. Well, after bombing and landing, he was immediately arrested and and put in a, a prison by the Japanese. He was tortured relentlessly and put in solitary confinement. The prisoners had a single Bible that they had to share with the entire prison, Six months in, when Jacob finally had his turn with the Bible, he read it over and over. He had never accepted Christ before until on his last day with the scriptures, he read Romans 10 and became a follower of Jesus. He knew his life had to change. One day after exercise, Jacob's guard hurried him into his cell, shoved him inside, and slammed the door right on his foot. The guard then kicked his foot while it was trapped in the door. Jacob desperately pushed on the door to free his foot while his mind blazed with rage. But the scriptures came to his mind, love your enemies, do good to them who hate you. He knew he was commanded to love, so the next day he respectfully greeted the guard in Japanese. The guard was puzzled. Jacob kept at it with his kindness, asked him about his family, was good even when the guard was bad to him. And eventually things changed. The guard was respectful to Jacob, brought him extra food and even some candy. After the war was over and he was released, Jacob returned to Japan. He wanted to continue to bless these people and helped to start several churches. He became famous as a prisoner who had forgiven his enemy and built a church in the town where he had once dropped a bomb. A shared prison Bible, studied and memorized, changed Jacob's life and so many in that country. And the scriptures can do the same for you. You could just want what you want, do what you do, or you could listen for God's voice by reading the scriptures and pursuing the way to the Father. God will grant you anything when you've taken the time to make sure what you want lines up with the will of God. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.